This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am so excited for today because we've got Wendy Waters. Wendy Waters, of course, past guest fan favorite. She is a VP, Vice President of Research Services and Strategy at GWL Realty Advisors Incorporated, which GWL stands for Great West Life. Right. Maybe you heard of them. I have actually. Yeah. Yes. Institutional <laughs> investors. She's the... Th- Great thing about Wendy is, you know, she's PhD smart. Yes. Which, which actually she's smarter she's, than a lot of PhDs. I know. She legit uh, has she, a PhD. She does though. have a PhD. She's super, super bright. And as head of research, she is so enmeshed in the details of the data that makes Vancouver an attractive market. Right. But also what other markets have going for them, what they lack, where Vancouver's strong points are. It's such a great conversation always with Wendy, and it was so good having her back on the show. She sent us a slide deck before she came on. And I got to say, every slide has now kind of like reshaped my understanding of really what's going on in this market. And we talk about a lot of those points, those talking points today on the show. And for me, it's like, I I, I know why I believe in the market. It's not always easy to reference specific data, but these are like, she, she crystallizes how a lot of people feel about the Vancouver real estate market or where their confidence comes from. She, she uses data basically to substantiate that. Right. And, and there's no emotion here, right? She's, she, she's She's like a scientist. She's doing She's doing research for institutional money. There's, there's less emotion involved in those purchases than any other. So Stay tuned for that. It's a great conversation with Wendy. Before we get to that, Adam, just wanted to shout out Jenny Conkin and Hallway House, who now is, it's not quite a sponsor as much as us attempting to support Hallway House. Yeah. She was on the show two episodes ago. We received tons of positive feedback from that. A lot of people reached out really excited about what Hallway House is doing for seniors and vulnerable people on the downtown east side and, and across Metro Vancouver. But really exciting was a few people from the development community have reached out. One person in particular who is is meeting with Jenny and and potentially doing some work with her. So really exciting stuff coming from that episode and the ongoing attempt to to shine light on Hallway House and ask for donations and volunteers. Yeah, and that, and that's a, that you hit the nail on the head. I think the biggest thing is. We believe in what Holy House is doing. I can't think of a better organization to be tackling some of the the challenges in the city of Vancouver. And you know, whatever small light that we have to shine on it, uh, we're going to continue to do so because it is. Um, yeah, I'm I'm super happy about the direction of how that episode has played out and the people who have reached out. Yeah. Solid, solid people. Absolutely. So. And uh, one other thing we we got to talk about. And this is something that I, th- I feel like has been in the works for a long time. You found another rental project. I found, yeah. God, is it hard to find rental projects right now. And if anyone's been looking, you can probably relate. 
The challenge with rentals right now is the inventory is so low that you are competing with end users on almost everything. If I'm listing something, I'm taking that into consideration as well. Someone's going to clean this up probably even just to live in. I, I think we could maybe even get an end user. This property is pretty, pretty rough. And, and maybe that's why I did have to compete for it. But uh, you know, I think the big thing, the big takeaway here is the same thing that we've been preaching on the program that has worked, has been the foundation of every good deal I've ever found in real estate, has been the same strategy. And it's a super simple one. Happy to share it. You know what, Adam? Let's talk about the strategy. How did you find this rental project in such an inventory constricted environment? Well, if anyone has listened to previous episodes, like how to find a deal in any market, uh, it's really the steps there. But I'll just give a, a, a bird's eye overview here. One is I have a private client services account set up very specifically for the type of properties that will work. So I age restrict the building. I'm looking at certain regions specifically. And there's a couple other modifications I do there for uh, the type of ownership, uh, power of attorney or state sale or, or foreclosure. And I have alerts. So when I get an alert, this is the key thing between, I think, being able to find a deal, not being able to find a deal. But when I get an alert, I stop what I'm doing, whatever I'm doing, and I check it. And nine out of, well, 90 out of... Uh, out of 100, would 100. you say? No, 99 out of 100 don't warrant any further exploration. Right. So it's, this is like a two-minute... It's tedious. It's a two-minute, but it, but it is a tedious. And it kind of does suck because often, you know, you're at the Canucks game or you're at, the, you're, you're at dinner or you're at whatever. But your I kids check in the bath. Your, your kids telling you that, that she loves you. And, <laughs> Hold that, thought. Hold that thought. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, but you're, you're not always in the best situation to be, to be looking at these, but you have to check them. So that's, that's uh, the first step. If I see no photos, I always explore it deeper. There's a mantra on this program, learn to love no photos. Often, especially if you're looking for renovation projects, but it can often be just a, a sign that uh, there's an opportunity because most people, if something gets listed without photos, a lot of people just will not pursue it any further, right? They click right by it. Ah, it's a dog, whatever it is, right? Yeah. If it was good, it would have photos. Or people are so now trained to just look at the marketing materials that that's what they're, all their focus they don't is have going the energy towards to pursue it any no. further. And I mean, the reality is, is most people are doing exactly those things, right? They're, they're, with, they're bathing their kid. They're out at a dinner. They're at a sport of, sporting event or wherever they are, but they don't have the ability to dig deeper. So... Yeah, the first step was I got the alert. I saw no photos. I dug deeper. I ran the numbers. I have a spreadsheet. Uh, we have a spreadsheet. And it's actually, you know what? Like once you, uh, and we're not accountants, but we built out a spreadsheet. Yeah. And it's, it's plug and play. Like this is, is super quick. Melissa, who's the Excel wizard on our team, I would and say. And ex-accountant, yeah. Uh, and yeah, and formerly an accountant. But she is uh, amazing with spreadsheets. And she's built us out different spreadsheets for renovation, for investment properties, for everything. But essentially what it is, is I, you know, you run the numbers. If the numbers pencil, they pencil. And if they don't, you move on. That's, you know, the step after you've kind of explored whether it even meets the criteria to be explored. Right. Right. So this is all, this all is in the first five, 10 minutes. All in the first five, 10 minutes. It all looks pretty darn attractive at this point. And then I have to find a way in and be first. So because the in, big thing is to be first. Right. In this case, what it happened, well, what we're, this is Wednesday. This came out on Monday. Yeah. So 
So on Monday and they were, was it first showings? I think there was a first showings there. So there's a first showings. They had two days on Tuesday and Wednesday. And, uh, and I found out that I had an opportunity to potentially see it on Monday. So I moved a bunch of stuff around in my schedule and I found a way out there and I drove out there and I viewed the property. So and, you uh, got in before the first, there were scheduled showings on Tuesday and Wednesday. I think I ended up in being, on Monday. I think I ended up being one of two groups. And then I, I immediately raced home. I called my wife. I explained the situation. She's familiar with the situation. Right. And, uh, I, set you're not my, referring to yourself. I said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I call myself the situation most, mostly because of my six pack. Uh, <laughs> it's a situation. Uh, the, you know, here's the thing. I, I went home, I set up on the kitchen Island and I banged this out till about 10.30 at night from about, what, six o'clock or so. And uh, we, we got it done. Uh, and uh, closing you quick. Were, you were in multiples. Yeah. But closing quick, cash buyer, and uh, subject free. So just to hammer this out, because that's one of the other things. So we know how you found it. Securing it. Because there was actually, what, two other offers? Two you, other you offers. You were competing with two other offers. Yeah. First day. One, it sounds like, was actually higher on price. Yeah. So yeah. it was the subject free nature of the of the offer that clinched it. Yeah, and and a little bit of due diligence up front. So as I'm as I'm working through it, I'm also reviewing everything I possibly can to make sure that I'm confident to go subject free. Now we've got the rescission period, right. which which actually is interesting because it, it one it makes more people confident to go subject free. Because, you know, if we, worst case scenario, 500 bucks, yeah, whatever it is. grand or whatever. But two is, it is a bit of a warm hug on like, I can get, I can get docs tomorrow or I can get, do- you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's a little bit, but seeing the property and, and doing like a bit of a thorough walkthrough first is, is everything. So if you want to know how this works out, because right now we're, we're really early days, follow us on Instagram because we're going to be talking about it. So you're going to be talking about this on Instagram and potentially documenting this entire process. There's going to be some vlogging. And that's video blogging for those of you who weren't born in the 70s. Yeah, that was, I think that was for yourself. You have to to Google out. Uh, Anyways, yeah. So anyways, super excited about it. Follow along. More episodes on that. More episodes I just want to ask one other thing because so it's pretty clear how you found it how you secured it, why this property, like, okay, so the, like the numbers you mentioned penciling, quote unquote, penciling out. Uh, but it, just for anyone listening, like why this property, this is a townhome. Yeah. You know what the thing is, is anytime you can add substantial value, like on the commercial real estate podcast with Corey, right? We talk about this all the time, but the idea that like, how do you add value to, uh, get, how can you increase value or increase rent? Right. So forced appreciation. And when you look at forced appreciation, this is something outside of what the market's doing, right? Mm-hmm. For people you that can are, control it, you can actually control it. And in this case, it's it's going to be adding a bedroom, adding a bathroom to a larger space that's not not completed, and and changing what it offers to an end user. This is very much a missing middle product, and I love missing middle. If you can swing it, if you can find something that caters to missing middle, taking a property that right now is essentially uninhabitable. And making it something that's perfect for a family. Nice outdoor is, space uh, here as well. Yeah. So everything that's kind of perfect for the family, but it's a family buyer. It's that price point that's still going to be attractive for, for a family and work for a family. It's not going to be an unreachable price point for most people, uh, I think, in the market. And that's the goal. 
So follow on Instagram to follow along vlogging this project over the next three months for sure at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. Also, Adam, last but not least, the soul plan. Yeah, this tons is, of people reaching out. So we, we need to say we've reconfigured VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. It's reconfigured in a number of ways. One, it's it's way easier to kind of navigate and isolate the type of information you're looking for. Sure. But we've also made it much easier to access the sold plan. Yeah. And it's literally, there's a button that says sell with us. Yeah, you go, it's uh, top of the page, uh, top of the fold, sell with us, sell with us takes us. You've got three different options to click sold plan throughout that that landing page. Uh, once you sign up for it, it creates a link to the sold you plan. You can literally download the sold plan. Yeah, you so don't you get need, it. You don't need to get an email. You don't need to type in info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com to request it. You hit the button, you get the plan. Yeah, and the sold plan, of course, stands for start on launch date. This is uh, something that you pick a launch date and you work your way backwards. And essentially, it's instructions of things that you need to do to get your property ready to list. It's super easy to understand. I think we've done a great job on formatting it. And the biggest thing is, is whether you're a year out, two years out, you're planning on selling this spring, it's useful for you. It's going to get, it's going to get you thinking about it. You can file away, file it away for a later date if you want for when you're ready to list. But the key is get the plan. It's advice basically based on our careers in real estate about how to get things sold. And we've sold a lot of property. Absolutely. That's sell with us at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com for the sold plan. And of course, as the button suggests, we'd love to help you. It's Kalina Brothers. Sell with us, VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Without further ado, this conversation is one that you're going to absolutely love. You're going to have a lot of takeaways. Wendy Waters, VP of Research Services and Strategy at GWL Realty Advisors. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Berquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam, with 165 homes ranging from junior one-beds to three-beds. Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at marcon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at marcon.ca or follow them at Instagram at marconhomes. Marcon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Wendy Waters, Vice President of Research Services and Strategy at GWL Realty Advisors. How are you doing, Wendy? I am doing great. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, thanks for taking the time today. Uh, can we maybe, for people that haven't heard you on our program before, can we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So, you know, you know, start at the top. I'm the Vice President of Research Services and Strategy at GWL Realty Advisors. We manage the real estate assets of pension funds and institutional real estate. 
including for our parent company, Canada Life. I've been there for coming up 17 years. And before that was at Avis and Young, also in a research role. And so I've been doing real estate research for over 20 years now. As the two of you know, but your audience may not know, sort of came into real estate by accident. And uh, I have a PhD in economic history. Found that, you know, the once I got the PhD, I was finding it less fun. So I went into the dot-com sector because that seemed like a lot of fun in 2000. And then in 2001, it was less fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, everything everything imploded, and so I uh, ended up answering an ad in the newspaper, looking for someone to do to bring a, a more of an academic research lens to the real estate sector, which hadn't really been done before. And so I, they hired me at Avis and Young, and uh, from there I just started looking at how I could bring some of that background, which was for using sometimes imperfect sources and a mix of qualitative and quantitative knowledge to real estate questions. And so did you then not being interested in real estate really originally, did you kind of, I would imagine you got really excited about real estate then or or, or was it a, a slog? Well, I got really excited about so many of the questions about how the world works and how cities work are all tied into that. So I did a lot of my doctoral research in Mexico City and that's kind of where I fell in love with how cities work. Uh, I loved it there. Uh, you know, just so many layers of where, how, you know, the relationship between where people live and jobs and, and the historical backdrop of all of that and transportation, you know, Mexico City just has all of these things going going for it. And uh, so I just gotten so interested just from watching cities. That was the interesting part, not so much the research I was doing, right. <laughs> was uh, waking my way around Mexico City every day. And uh, so all these things I started to get interested in there, then sort of came together when I got into real estate, because you could sort of see how do cities evolve and how do people move and how do people interact with cities. And real estate at the end of the day with office, industrial, retail, multi-residential rental, which is what we do at at Realty Advisors and a lot of the brokerage houses like Avis & Young also have people that specialize in all that. All of those kinds of real estate types are all part of just the urban fabric and how it fits together. And people don't always think about the importance of the industrial space. But, you know, if you like that stuff you buy at the store, it's spent time at an, in, you know, in an industrial space. Right. Obviously, now people think maybe with e-commerce, they think about it a little bit more because it all has to come from a, a logistics or a, you know, a facilitation center. But uh, anyway, so that's where sort of why I think it just suddenly clicked was, wow, these are all these things I was finding interesting along the way of getting my PhD. Right. Yeah. Like we often say on the podcast, as as we've kind of been doing it over the years and digging down, it's like real estate encompasses almost any, like we could talk to anyone almost on this show in some capacity, right? Because it's it's so broad and interesting and multi-layered. I'm just wondering, Wendy, before we move on, bringing an academic lens to real estate data, what did that actually look like? Like, can you unpack that a bit? Sure. Well, the first piece that I wrote that I think got some attention was back in 2003 and Vancouver was a finalist to get the 2010 Winter Olympic Games. So the big question was, what is this going to mean for the real estate sector? Commercial real estate, probably residential, but I was focused more on the commercial side. And so I went and took my comparative research methodologies and went and looked at what had happened in other Olympic cities that were comparable to Vancouver in terms of their office demand and industrial demand and housing demands and so forth and population shifts and the economy in these other cities and then translated that to a Vancouver scale. So, you know, what's comparable about Salt Lake City, Turin, Sydney, 
and Vancouver, what pieces are comparable and sort of triangulated that into a piece on um, what the impacts would be on Vancouver. And so better understanding how the, how the Olympics impact uh, a city and its real estate markets and how much more office space is needed, industrial, what it's like afterwards. There is such thing as an Olympic hangover. <laughs> yeah, I had a few of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is the, the real real estate experiences that do in uh, in Olympic cities. <laughs> I, and so, it, it, it was it accurate the, the the piece that you did on the Olympics? Yeah, we went and um, took a look back at it with um, at, at the time um, with Andrew Petrosi, who at the time had my job at Avis and Young. He's now over at at, at Altus, but uh, we went and looked at it because you know using the same sort of the Avis and Young data because every real estate brokerage has slightly different data. So we we looked at it. Yeah, it did come in fairly accurate. Obviously, we had the economic crisis of two thousand nine, right, which was not foreseen in two thousand three. But uh, in terms of the overall demand and then the letdown uh, in 2011, 2012, as you know, sort of things, things shifted, um, the temporary, you know, office needs and employment shifted. Yeah, it was actually, uh, it was actually pretty close. I don't have the stats in front of me to be able to, to quote it, but it was, I was actually pleasantly surprised. We released a report at the end of February, 2020, but it sort of got, <laughs> it, it didn't get a lot of attention uh, because of something else that happened in the beginning of March, 2020. But uh, yeah, but uh, with Avis and Young and, and, and Realty Advisors, we kind of did an update to that piece uh, from, you know, from back in 2003. It's sort, of sort of the 10-year an- anniversary of the Olympic Games is what we were going for as the release. Right. And, and are you doing so, I, I just want to think about the comparative angle. We often think about what other cities kind of resemble Vancouver and our market. Are there cities that you look to kind of use that come up more often than not that you're kind of referencing? Well, for the Olympics, I had to go with cities that had hosted sure, an Olympics right, in recent right. in recent memory. So that, you know, Sydney was, although it was a summer Olympics, at least it still has some of those characteristics of some geographic constraints, naturally, you know, an international city. You know, in some ways, Sydney's more like Toronto than Vancouver, but in other ways, it's like Vancouver. So it's sort of taking pieces of that. Uh, generally, Van- Vancouver's kind of a unique City. So sometimes it's, it's hard to find another city in the world that compares directly because, you know, the real estate, the, you know, is the vacancy. It's just so tight here. Um, there's both land constraints. There's also some policy constraints, but, it, you know, the land constraints have been there all along. Um, so, we, you know, for some things, obviously, you look up and down the West Coast for similarities, Toronto and Vancouver, we compare a lot because there's a lot of similarities, even though they're different sizes. Uh, in terms of the structure, of the economy is somewhat similar. Um, although, you know, Toronto is a little more finance, Vancouver is a little more tech and entertainment tech. Yeah, but it's actually, it's quite hard to find ones that, that work perfectly. So it's taking pieces of cities from around the world sometimes and trying mm-hmm. to understand that. I'm just thinking here is, so it is, well, maybe I'll put it this way. If we were in Toronto or Philadelphia or, you know, I don't know, pick pick another city, is it just that every city is unique or is it that Vancouver is actually specifically more unique than other cities? Well, I think for Canada, every city does ha- is quite unique. You know, the U.S. I think has some cities which work very, in very similar ways, although that might just be my 100,000 foot view of them right? Uh, in terms of what their economic structures are and, and, and what drives them. But port cities have, you know, their own drivers, which are related to the port, which are just, just inherent there. The natural resource cities, which Vancouver kind of used to be one, is a little bit less of one now, uh, have, have some characteristics in terms of just how their economies work. But um, 
yeah, it, it's a good question. I don't have a, you know, not really giving you a very good answer other than every, we look at every city, we pick apart at what drives its economy, what drives its office market, what drives its industrial demand. And every city has similarities and differences. Right, right. And can we talk a little bit about, I guess, GWL and what GWL Realty Advisors does? And then uh, we've talked to you about it before, of course, but for people who, it's been actually a number of years, we were just talking uh, before we went live, but also your position specifically in research and strategy, you know, what, what the goals are there. Sure. So, you know, a little bit more, as I said, we, we manage institutional real estate. So that's pension funds and institutional clients. We have a couple open-ended funds, which pension funds that are usually smaller pension funds will use. So it's sort of a, a little bit like a mutual fund for pension funds, but it's an open-ended segregated fund. Uh, so we have one's about, I believe, about six and a half billion and the other one's around four billion in assets under management in Canada. We have those. And then we also do direct investments for some of our pension fund clients. And that would be, you know, or a half, you know, sometimes there's a, a half ownership in an office or a full ownership in office, industrial, retail, multi-residential rental. We do new developments as well, both for the open-ended funds and for the, you know, for individual clients as, uh, you know, as the opportunity arises uh, when we, you know, a site comes to us and we then look for who's the right client to develop, to develop this. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's assets under management, there's new development. A lot of the growth that we look for is, is new development, although, you know, we do buy uh, income producing properties straight out. Uh, for pension funds, why do pension funds have real estate? I mean, we go, go there. Um, they use real estate as a way to pay their unit holders. So they're retirees. They need a certain amount of cash flow every month to pay out retirees. Most pension funds have about 10 to 15% of their assets in real estate. So the rest might be equities, bonds, infrastructure, you know, you know, other investment vehicles, but 10 to 15% is in real estate. And they like it for the kinds of real estate we're managing. They like it for just that steady income flow. The tenants pay the rents, the rents ultimately, you know, what's left after the operating costs of the buildings, then go to pay uh, the retirees. So, you know, we have a variety of private sector, union, pension funds that are in the, the open-ended funds. And then we have, you know, Specific, I think you know, government type pension funds as well that we do some direct uh, investment with. And so, and when you're, I, I'd love to get back to the cash flow question uh, in a bit, but just thinking about your specific role. So it's data crunching the numbers, research, but then there's also this kind of strategic component. Can you talk a little bit about what your role is at, at GWL? Yeah. So with the research team, you know, the questions that are, are put in front of us typically revolve around what's the right strategy for these pension funds. And they're long-term investors typically. Uh, so, you know, things are 10, 15, 25 years. And so we're thinking about not just what's the right asset to have today, but what are the right assets? What's the right mix of assets and, and you know, at different types of assets and different geographies? What is the right mix over 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years to make sure that you've got a steady flow of income, minimizing the downside volatility. So don't, you know, we don't want to have times when there's no cash flow. That's not good. And obviously it won't happen in a very diversified portfolio. But the idea is to mitigate the risk uh, to that steady cash flow with diversifying across different geographies, asset types. So my team, we look at what's happened in the past. We create models of what the future could look like based on different, different scenarios in the past and come up with recommendations of ranges of, you know, what 
you know, what cities in, in Canada, what types of real estate, what offers, you know, different types of real estate offers something slightly different to a pension fund. So, you know, if we do multi-residential rental, for example, it's very low vol. It's a fairly low return. You do not get rich on multi-residential rental, despite what there's people out there might say, <laughs> uh, but it's a very low volatility. So you can always lease 500 square feet to somebody, especially housing in Canada, you know, it's, it's in demand. And so it's a very reliable asset class in terms of always being, being able to find a tenant or a resident to live there. It might always not be at the exact rent that you were hoping to achieve, but there's always somebody to come in and pay the rent because we manage, we think we do an excellent job managing great communities for people to live in. And so even in a softer market, flight to quality, people will come to us. So we're, we're you know, we know we can always keep that full. Office and industrial, you might have slightly higher returns, but there's a little more volatility because in a soft market, there might not be a tenant for 100,000 square feet of industrial. There's always that risk there. Office, similarly, sometimes we go into soft office markets and it's just really hard to find anybody that's looking for space or the the space that you have. Again, Vancouver is a market that's a bit unique in that there's still enough constraints that it tends to be less volatile uh, in that way very steady. That's why Vancouver is expensive, is because it's reliable, (laughs) (laughs) you know, in terms of demand, demand's a little more reliable. But that's what our team does is looking at at, and how you balance. So how much multi-res do you want to have depending on the pension funds, goals and needs versus office versus industrial? The other thing we do is shop as grocery anchored retail. We don't do the big sort of power center, super center type shopping centers, but we do grocery anchored retail as well. So how much of all of that do you need and where and how does that balance out? Some cities do tend to do well when others are doing poorly and vice versa. And and so you need to balance all of that out to create a model of what is hopefully a very steadily producing income stream and return stream for the pension fund clients. And I'm I'm just thinking here uh, in terms of geographies and asset classes, what what I guess it's always you always have a bundle of different uh, a variety, I should say. But what's really attractive right now, or as you said, you know, not necessarily right now, but over the next five, ten years, in your mind? Well, I think rental housing, and that's been you know, it's been a, a focus of ours for a long time. We were one of the first pension fund managers doing doing rental housing. So that is still there. Obviously, there's we can talk about this quite a bit because we put out a lot of stats on this. There's a you know quite a severe housing shortage, both in Vancouver and Toronto. So a lot of need for it, uh, which means that, you know, if you can get a site and get it built, you know, there's strong demand for it. So now managing the costs and rent controls are are, are another challenge that all the pension fund managers are having. But uh, so we like, yeah. So over the long term, we like rental housing. Uh, we still like office, but office, you know, there's there's a shift to experiential office Certainly, it doesn't mean that every single office building is something that uh, that we like. So then it's thinking about which office buildings and where. Right. But, I, you know, we're still believers that people will be working from offices more than not. And some of the shifts we've seen recently, have, they were already in play before the pandemic. We've just got a magnifying glass on them. Industrials, obviously, it's just been on fire for the last five plus years in the MTV markets. So Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, but around North America, the e-commerce growth. Uh, it's just required a lot more industrial space, just, just needed in the whole supply chain, the consumer supply chain. So we we like industrial long term. You know, we like multi-res in particular. Office, still still believers in office, but, you know, it's, it's still a, 
there's some challenges and opportunities in office, and it's it's balancing the challenges and the opportunities. And we've really liked grocery anchored retail. It's performed really well through the pandemic uh, with people maybe working from home one or two extra days a week. It's uh, something that's certainly looking at in maybe more sub suburban markets where there's going to be more demand. Any market that's growing its population, the grocery anchored retail centers. So you know that's where you don't, you know you might have the you know, just your chain grocery store, and there might be a shoppers there or a pharmacy there as well, and a Starbucks or some equivalent coffee shop. And, right. and so those places that people need to go almost every day uh, right. in a neighborhood, and especially if the population around it's growing, those kinds of sites, so uh, we, we really like it's just a long-term uh, stable opportunity for, for our uh, clients. You mentioned the uh, rental market is undersupplied right now. Can we talk a little bit about that? Can we talk about like, how is the rental market in the lower mainland? Well, I think if you know if you see in the CMHC stats, I think it was zero point nine percent vacant for the whole market. I think the downtown peninsula was something like zero point six percent. When CMHC once a year they do a survey in October, so we get to, to take a look at it once a year. So extremely tight. We have you know housing models that you know that help us give good numbers to our development team for figuring out performance, figuring out what sites can they can make work. So we model the supply demand imbalance, and you know we have a in Vancouver, I believe, well, it was, this was now a year ago. I don't think we've done the new calculations completely because we were just still digesting new information, but we were 33,000 units short a year ago wow. in terms of for purpose-built rental. So that's a, you know, and so then in the last year, it's gotten worse, we know, because we added a net 3,800 units and we added 78,000 people to the region. 74,000 of those were, were migrants. Um, there's a 64,000 person growth in people over the age of 20, which was migrants and the few people who are aging from age 19 to age 20 in the region. <laughs> so we have, but it's just how many more adults did we add? Because looking at the theory that most adults don't want to live with 20 other adults. So therefore, <laughs> if we're not adding housing to meet, you know, 64,000 more grownups, you know, and a, a typical household, you know, household sizes are shrinking. Uh, and especially they're skewing younger to the 25 to 34-year-olds, um, which are more like about a 1.7, 1.8 people per household. You know, we were, we're you know, to add 3,800 rental units. I think it was only a, with uh, the estimate of the condo rental, about 6,000, 6,500 units. And then even if you look at just the whole market, you have to sort of take a guess on demolitions for... You know, you can sure. look at completions, but someone tears down a single family house and builds another one. And we haven't gotten ourselves any further ahead. Right. So I think we came up about 18 to 20,000 was the net completions for 64,000 more adults. Um, so that's ownership, rental, everything. So we're kind of underbuilding by about half. I was looking at a slide, um, a slide, a graph that you provided that was on a slideshow that I was looking at where it, it says a crisis 15 years in the making. And it's basically detailing the data you're just unpacking here but it sounds like not only is it are we you know in this last year are we like well okay we're, we're underbuilding in this last year the the and inflows of new residents is expanding and the the number of houses aren't we've been doing that for close to two decades yeah so if you look back to if we just look at rental housing we look back to 1990 and there was um I believe it was about 110,000 purpose-built rental units in the Lower Mainland in the or Metro Vancouver. And now there's 118,000. So we've got 30 years and we've managed to add 7,000, 8,000 units net. <laughs> <laughs> and half of those were in the last year, by yeah. the way. So we're doing better. 
uh, in terms of purpose-built rental and getting under construction, uh, but it doesn't make up for decades of not building purpose-built rental. Right. And so that starts to get into the, you know, the cost of it, the affordability question, because the older stock is more affordable, theoretically, but we haven't been building for 20, 30 years much in the way of purpose-built rental. So there, you can't build brand new and old building. Right. You know, so traditionally, the newer product was nicer and newer, and people with a little bit more money rented that. And if you had less money, you rented something a bit older or a basement suite or whatever. And some of it had to do with just how old you were. You know, I lived in a basement suite when I was 20. Sure. You know, and then ended up in, you know, an old, older purpose-built rental before, you know, uh, my now husband and I bought something. But uh, that was just, that was a normal path. And that's really not there anymore. It's, it's people are just, you know, living with parents longer, lots of um, overcrowded households you know, multiple people in, you know, four, six, eight people in two bedroom suites. Right. And that's just literally a product of the numbers that you're talking about kind of compounding year over year. Exactly. Like the chart. And I think you might put it on your, your Instagram or on your website right. or, or something. I think a real estate podcast. <laughs> yeah. I said, you can see that every year we add, you know, it's a chart showing the number of net new 25 to 34 year olds we add to the market. That's a prime rental demographic. That's why we we look at that right. that age cohort. Or maybe it's 20 to 34 year olds. Uh, which, 20 to 34. 20 to 34 there, thank yeah. you. We've got different charts. So which one did I give you? <laughs> 20 to 34 year olds. So prime renter demographic, how many net new people in that age group versus how many new units. And you can see there's nice tall, tall column chart lines for the new people and almost nothing. You need a magnifying glass. I was going to gonna say, at first I just was looking going, I'm not understanding the chart because the change in purpose-built rental units you thought it was just the line. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Why, yeah. why have we done such a poor job? Well, obviously, we were adding condominium product for a while. And condominium product is some ways, it's easier to build from a, a capital stack or finding the capital perspective. So condo developers can typically historically been able to pay more for a site than a rental developer. Uh, and then because they can, they do their pre-sales, they get their loans ahead of time. There's just a lot less risk. You need, you know, a lot less equity up front or the, the lending straight up front. It's, you know, for rental, it's all us or us, you know, on behalf of our clients, you know, where there might be some construction loan, but it's not the same as where you've been able to diversify it across a hundred different individual investors mm-hmm, right. who've all bought units. So the condo model was creating a lot of housing in this market and, you know, other markets across the country for for a long time. Still is, and so I'll just and obviously a lot of those units show up in the rental pool, which is which is great because we needed the rental stock, and that's partly why we got away with it was because there was at least something to rent. I, I think as as we know, it's not a stable rental stock. The purpose of rental rental that often investor owners they keep it for one or two years. They realize that being a landlord's actually work, <laughs> and there's yeah, the you know, passive uh, nature of it is not. A, it is not passive. A, it is not a passive investment. And for what you know, often what you get in returns, you in some ways you might as well have a passive investment. Like go buy the bank, go buy bank stocks, and it's sure, a lot, sure. it's a, a lot less headaches. And you know, and whether depending on the quality of the unit, you know how much repairs needed to be done. So those units tend to turn over. They tend to turn over to owner occupiers because people look as you, you know, your your real estate agents, you know, people who are looking for a home tend to want to buy something that's already there. Mm-hmm, they can right. see where they're going to put the couch, or they need they need a home to live in. Yeah, now. I was going to say that's the big challenge, right? It's like, do you want to buy something for three years from now? And you're like, well, I'm, yeah, I need somewhere to go. Why am I paying rent? Yeah, and so therefore, when, as soon as a condo becomes available that's already finished that's when the owner users will tend to outbid the investor because mm-hmm. they need a home. 
and there's a value on the home, the investor probably needs at least a four or five percent return to do it. So that's why they all so they fall out of the rental stock is sort of the the point of that mm-hmm. long-winded explanation. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not stable, obviously not professional landlords in most cases. Obviously, some of the condo product is professionally managed, but uh, as rental, but um, a lot of it is not, which creates some other challenges for renters. You know, being in a you know an individual owner who may or may not live anywhere near here when there's something goes wrong versus if you're renting from a, a professional, you know, landlord, something like us, dishwasher goes. We can probably repair it the same day. We might mm-hmm. have a spare one in the basement, mm-hmm. you know. There's, you know, versus uh, try getting a hold of the landlord who's on his boat in the Caribbean or you know, <laughs> yeah, wherever. Yeah. I'm looking at this uh, this chart right now, and and you were saying that we're doing better. If you if you think about maybe the reasons why we're doing better, if we can talk about that a bit, but then also uh, what's preventing us from building more purpose-built rental right now? Is it is it just getting outbid by by condo developers or is there more, more to the story? Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. This podcast is sponsored by Common Ground Consulting. Are you developing in the Lower Mainland? Common Ground Consulting is a development management and consulting company with experience in single family, townhouses, multifamily, and commercial developments. What I love about Common Ground, Adam, is they manage the whole development process from due diligence and feasibility reports for initial purchase of land to completing rezoning, development permits, and building permits. They streamline the whole process with strong relationships with sub-consultants and municipalities and a deep understanding of all city requirements. Common Ground Consulting. Feasibility and efficiency prioritized every step of the way. Learn more at commonground-consulting.com or 604-807-6419. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. Well, the, the, the challenge is still pulling together, you know, what the industry, someone might call the capital stack, but figuring out how you're going to make, make this work. So for pension funds, a lot of them have re- rules around how long you can't land bank. Like, you, you, you know, again, we're trying to right. pay pensioners yeah. their their pensions. So we can't have land sitting in, you know, an empty lot for a long period of time. So the length of the approvals process is one of the one of the challenges for the institutional, so the pension fund uh, investors in uh, purpose-built rental for the development process. So that's, that's certainly one of them. You know, it's the right now, obviously, there's interest rates and so forth, but it's the length of time to get a, a site going. Also, the risks, you know, if it has to go to a rezoning or a public hearing, you know, there's a risk that you're going to get a no from council. So that makes it very hard for some groups, you know, to, to buy to buy a site, not knowing if you can build rental. And we don't do, you know, we don't do condo. And a lot of the people, pension fund managers are, you know, counterparts either haven't historically, they might be looking at it because sometimes condo can be a backup plan. Yeah. You can't pivot, right? <laughs> we don't, we don't, yeah, we haven't historically pivoted. You know, that's not been part of our plan or our client's plan to, to do that. 
So that's another reason, you know, but one of the reasons, yeah, it's, it's just the length of time it takes to get a project going, the risk that you could get a no, or, you know, that it, you're going to end up in a bat, what we can just call a battle um, with, to, to try and get it through where eventually you'll win. So in Ontario, there's an appeal process if uh, you get turned down at, at a public hearing, city council, but the appeal process then adds another year to your timeline and time is money. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, if we put a lot of money, obviously Vancouver is expensive. You buy a site, that's a lot of money, a lot of risk right there. Clock starts ticking on that, you know, on the, you know, uh, on the the interest rates of an Ely loan, or just your, you know, the cost where you could have been putting that money, sure, so that capital somewhere cost, else. There's yeah. an opportunity cost there, and then it's just how long is it going to take? So that's why you're not seeing as much of, of the institutional, but even the private families here, uh, they might build condo instead, or they just say they build in another market. Mm-hmm. And if you start, you know, if you start going through some of the big. Um, uh, sort of more family-owned companies that operate out of Vancouver, and you look at where they've been building. They've been building down the West Coast. They've been building right. in Chicago. They've been building elsewhere uh, in in North America. They can get it done faster. You know, less red tape in most cases. The other thing you have to think about is your long-term cash flow and the rent control situation in in BC and Ontario. And that's yeah, and that's what I wanted to touch on. Do you think the Residential Tenancy Act has has created a, a burden for a lot of people to come into this market? Well, not so much the Residential Tenancy Act itself, but the the change. So, you know, up until 2017, I believe it was, we were CPI plus two was mm-hmm. the rent control right. guideline in BC. Uh, Ontario was straight CPI. California, CPI plus seven. And, you know, partly why are we doing better right now? A lot of the projects that opened the last year started under CPI plus two including ours. We finished two this year or in the past, uh, say, 14 months, we finished two new rental buildings. So that was attractive for some of the Canadian capital because it looked better than Toronto and the Vancouver market back to it being very state, you know, very stable, very reliable incomes being actually, despite what you might hear, income has been going up here um, quite strongly. So this, that's partly why that, you know, seven years ago, A lot of uh, projects started, and that's why we're seeing some pretty strong um, rental completions right now. Right. So I, I, and again, this is sort of outside of where we operate, but my understanding is, is that there was a a moment in the last, say, five years where rental started making sense, partly because of interest rates, but partly there was a bunch of things that kind of came together to make purpose-built rental attractive again. And as I understand it, that's no longer the case. Interest rates alone make it no longer the case. But the interesting thing in, in my mind is, is that, uh, you know, when we're talking about this 15 years in the making, the crisis of how many renters there are versus houses available. Right now, we're in a moment where purpose-built rental doesn't make sense, but building condos seems to not make sense either. Right. It doesn't make sense to build anything. That and That is the challenge that we have in this market and people keep coming. And so if we're worried about affordability, you know, and I'm not a policy expert, but somebody with policy expertise to think about what levers can we turn right now yeah. to make sure that construction keeps going. You know, the obvious thing would, would probably be to, to turn on purpose-built rental, but also the non-market side. Is there a chance to pivot some of the, the labor costs that's been going up and right. labor availability, pivot some of that in, into uh, that side as well, you know, for the, the nonprofit housing. But yeah, we are... I am very worried about the situation right now because as you say, it doesn't, it's hard to make a condo make sense. It's hard yeah. to make a rental make sense with the current interest rates. Hopefully they come down. You know, the one thing about some of the institutions, again, is taking the long-term view. So there's some possibility, you know, there's 
some attractiveness to going anyway, because if you're taking a 25 year view on right. things and figuring out how to, you know, manage the extra cost of capital that is right now, that, that is there right now. But for a private uh, builder, a private, you know, company, can you move forward? That's, that's a challenge, especially if you can't get pre-sales because now you've got to get, you know, people like you and your clients to try to come through with, uh, you know, pre-sales and right. with interest rates being, you know, or mortgage rates being in and payments and so forth, they at least double what they were. Do they have the confidence to put a down payment right. on a unit that they won't see for three years? You know, maybe they will as things stabilize because you don't actually, of course, you don't complete on the unit for a few years. But uh, I am worried about the housing supply pulling back. They're the starts really pulling back in this environment. So, so it sounds like if you're bet making a bet right now about whether rents will be going up, down, or staying stable, it sounds like you're saying they're, they're going up. They're going up. People keep coming and they're coming for good jobs. And, you know, in the, the stack I gave you, there's probably some fairly confusing charts about the, the incomes of immigrants. But, you know, we were looking at the incomes of immigrants because historically there was this all this, this idea of, you know, it's the doctor driving a taxi cab and they don't have money. And so what's been happening to immigrant incomes? And they are up 64% in the last nine years for, if you look at people 25 to 34 years old coming in as an economic immigrant one year after they got their per permanent residency status. So one year after becoming, we might call a new Canadian or at least a permanent resident, what's their income? It's up 64%. And so it's up to around 50,000 in 2020 dollars. In 2020 is the last year the government's released data on this four. And that's, you know, that's substantial, but $50,000 for one person, one year after they've arrived, yeah. you think about all the people that have been here four or five, six years, how also you put that person into a two person household, you know, especially a couple income in today's dollars, probably together, it'd be $110,000. You can rent brand new product in the high end neighborhoods in Vancouver mm -hmm. with that kind of income, you get a small one bedroom, but a couple could do that. Mm -hmm. So people can't afford the new rental, which is good news. We did this research in part to show that we can be comfortable with the high rents that we need in order to put a shovel in the ground and start building that, you know, the rents are not going to be what you pay in an older building, you know, in the suburbs, if we're, if we're building brand new in, you know, in, in prime neighborhoods in, mm -hmm. in Vancouver or North Vancouver. Is there other interesting stuff? Can we just talk about population growth a little bit? Because I, I know like we've talked, I think it was on our Instagram, you know, about basically the one and a half million people over the next three years. But I know presumably you're doing kind of a little bit more fine, detailed analysis of who's coming and, and the numbers. Can we just talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the one and a half million to Canada over the next three years, that's new permanent residents. Right. But there's also a large number of what are called non-permanent residents that are welcomed every year. And I believe just last quarter, there was 200,000 of them to Canada. Wow. So that's, so we're talking like close to a million people a year of non-permanent. Well, of that was just Q4, which is some of that was, I think, some pent up demand from the, um, from the pandemic and so forth. But what were, I think Benjamin Tall at CIBC was estimating that we might, uh, for 2022, when it all is added up, it might be close to a million new people showed up in Canada in that were not there. In 2022, our model and, and uh, my colleague Sarah Obidi uh, on my team has been figure, trying to figure this out. We came out at 938,000. So pretty close. <laughs> with her. <laughs> yes. Just looking at, and that's foreign students coming in. So the net gain in, in international students uh, across Canada 
That's obviously people coming in for temporary, any kind of temporary employment. Uh, that also includes Ukrainians. Uh, so people coming in on those temporary permits. And there's a lot of Ukrainians who haven't landed yet that have permits, is my understanding. Like they haven't managed to get here, but they have the right to come. So that's some of the reasons why we're seeing elevated immigration, or total migration. So mm-hmm. permanent residents, non-permanent residents. And when you start thinking the housing market, they all need a place to live. So you can't just model your future housing needs on only the gain in permanent residents. You need to gain all people who are welcome to be in Canada right now mm-hmm. all need housing. And so that's been one of the crunches. And then sometimes I think some of the government models haven't always thought incorporated the non-permanent residents because they used to be a little bit more of just a pass through. Like every year, a certain number would come and a certain number would leave and you'd end up with just modest net gains or net losses in non-permanent residents. But international students in particular have been a growing source of both future Canadians as well as uh, revenue for the universities across the country. Is there a rough percentage that you use of non-permanent residents that become permanent residents? Is that something that that you're considering? Yeah, so it's in it's in our models. We get that, and we get what's been happening, you know, recently from um, the the Immigration and Refugee uh, Citizenship Canada Department. But um, during the pandemic, it, they raised it was all the way up about eighty percent of new of new Canadians came were coming from the non permanent residents because they were already here. You couldn't right. bring in anybody because we had the borders closed. Right. Uh, otherwise, I believe it's between about twenty and thirty percent of. So when you, you hear about how many new immigrants, there are new permanent residents, about 20 or 30% were already here. And then the rest are coming for, you know, were not here at least immediately before they got that permanent residency status. They might've come here for university, gone back to a home country, but then subsequently been offered a job here because they had a Canadian university degree. Obviously that makes them very employable mm-hmm. in Canada. And then they came back. And, yeah. and I, and I, we always hear the number of 35% will settle in the lower mainland Canadian immigrants. I, I don't know how accurate that is or not. That gets thrown around, but I, I think it's more like 18 actually. 18%. Yeah. Okay. Cause yeah, that was one thing I was noticing. Most realtors say 50%, I think. I think I say 75. <laughs> yeah. So we're all, we're all over the map. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> but which are accurate, which, yeah, which yeah. numbers are accurate. We don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so 18% will settle in the lower mainland then historically, that's where they roughly. tend to roughly end up. And I think it's more like 35 to 40% has been in the GTA, uh, the Got Toronto it. market, and then about 18. But it, there's actually a fair amount of volatility year to year. Obviously, depends on jobs, depends on uh, which university is adding more international student uh, counts and so forth. But uh, that's that's my recollection. If, if I'm wrong, I will uh, send you guys an email and you can post a correction on the on, <laughs> on the Instagram. Try to remember. There's a lot of stats to remember, which, uh, you know, when we're doing this uh, this live, mostly without notes. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I, I have less a, a numbers question. And I feel like this takes me back to when we were talking a lot about the municipal election and kind of the dire straits situation. But it strikes me as there's two ways I'm just hearing what you're saying. One is that, the the quote unquote housing crisis we've been in for seemingly forever is just actually getting worse and worse and worse. Like, is there a breaking point? And by breaking point, I guess where, you know, the economy, like it's just not viable to to do business in Vancouver. Like, does that actually, is there, because it, it just seems like, you know, I was listening, David Eby was on the radio this morning and he was like, you know, maybe it was political spin, but a lot of, uh, a number of BC's problems are, you know, that we're, we're growing very quickly. Like it's a 
product of our success in a lot of ways. Um, but is there a breaking point? Maybe I'll just leave it there as the first question. Well, I think I am worried about the housing crisis in terms of as a threat to the other real estate that we manage in terms of this fiduciary responsibility to the, our pension fund clients and, and, and their investments. Yeah, I am worried about not having enough housing means that there will be a pullback in the growth of office-oriented jobs in Vancouver. So, you know, some of the big U.S. tech companies that we're all familiar with adding, that have been adding a lot of jobs in this market, if they start hearing that people can't find housing, even making good six-figure incomes, they can't find housing, will they just look, okay, we got to go some, just we got to find another city if, you know, whether it's in the U.S. or you can't find people in the U.S., you know, they may move to another city in Can in Canada, I mean, I think Calgary is a great candidate for some of these companies, and I would not be surprised if they if they do end up going there. Maybe not at the expense of Vancouver, in addition, but it could also mm -hmm. be at the expense of Vancouver. So yeah, so is there a breaking point? I don't know if there's an actual exact point. I think there's just that bending spot where Vancouver becomes less attractive to, you know, bring in people, you know, because even if you're creating jobs here, you probably are also bringing in leadership from somewhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. And you know, most people are quite happy to come to Vancouver. It's a nice place to live. So we know that. But if you have to then start paying them extra because this is a really expensive market to help get them in a house, in, you know, mm -hmm. into homes or just you can't find them housing at any price. And that's obviously what becomes the, the, the challenge. So I think there's a bending point. I think we're probably very close to it now. Uh, and I think especially probably the next year has even more newcomers to this market coming in. So we, you know, it's going to get, the situation will get worse, even if we could turn on the touts for housing. And mm -hmm. I think some of the suburban municipalities in the region have done a really good job of, re, of just opening up, intensifying, you know, big sh regional shopping center sites to adding a lot more housing. They've got, you know, some other brownfield, greenfield sites, which they've been able to use. And they've been going with high density housing and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, very, you know, dynamic mixed use communities, walkable communities. So that's been great. But more of the region that's already established, like the city of Vancouver, needs to do more of that and really just find a way to turn on density. But even if we do that, the problem is it still takes three years to build a higher density building. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe two if you're, if, if the supply chain's now not in COVID, COVID right, times, right. but uh, our last two, you know, two buildings, they were three years of, uh, of construction. That's the challenge is even if we could turn it on, we're still in this really tough point right now where more people are coming and it takes years to get a building built, even if you're, you got all your permits today sure. and assuming you could even find the trades and construction crew to, right. uh, to get it done. Cause that's also where we're at a, a retire, you know, a retirement crisis in the trades and construction industry as well. Right. Hopefully some of the, the new arrivals will be going into the trades. Well, I think that's something we need that yeah, the government has. Probably been, not, though. No, like. that's <laughs> across the country. That's certainly something that the real estate and the construction industry has been pushing the government for. I was going to say, because the point system, right? It, it, I don't, I haven't looked at it for a long time, but my understanding was they don't, if you're a carpenter, it's not like the, you don't get as many if, as if you're a doctor. Yeah. And yeah, but even for the non-permanent residents, you know, in the past, we've, we've welcomed people to come to work in some of the, the lower skilled jobs in say the healthcare system, you know, in, as non-permanent residents and it's a path to citizenship as well and caregivers and so forth. I think, you know, there is a, a lobby on the government to say, we need to do the same for trades and construction workers and semi-skilled and skilled construction labor, at least invite them in as non-permanent residents mm -hmm. with a path to citizenship. And that once you've been here and you've been contributing to Canada, you know, presumably there is a path, that, right. you know, we should keep you here because we need to keep building. Yeah. So, it, you know, just thinking back to the, 
to the, maybe not the breaking point, but the bending point. One of the things I think about, and maybe this is a crass, although, I mean, it's all of our businesses, I guess. So it's maybe not a crass way of looking at it. I, I worry about the health of the city and potentially the overall economy. But I just think in terms of like strategy, this situation is, is this is a great place to own real estate. Yes. Like, is there a way in which this situation seems so brutal that like if anybody's worried about real estate, this is like the warm hug you need, right? Is talking to Wendy Waters. But it, so I'm just thinking like, is there that bending point? Like, is there, can we play out a negative? I feel like the positives for homeowners or investors in Vancouver are pretty clear and it's pretty tragic for somebody looking for a rental or just a home period. But can we play out like, what's the worst case scenario here for the bending point? Like, what does that look like? Is it just kind of, a mass exodus? Does it become just a resort town like we've been talking about for a decade or or what? Well, I think it's I think for a while it was sort of drifting into resort town. And then we, you know, we had all the job growth and the office job related job growth and the tech growth. And and so, you know, now that's you know, it's created as as, you know, if I didn't hear the premier this morning, but the economy here has been very successful. Right. I think we 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 are tracking office-oriented jobs, and for a number of years, Vancouver was growing them at five or six percent a year. Yeah. That is a lot of employment, of, and these are good, well-paying jobs. So it's it's creating a situation where people could afford more real estate. And so then, of course, it was meaning that all real estate went up because there was we have a supply crisis that we weren't adding supply. So the bending point, if you were, you know, is it going to be where it's going to be a bit of a crash on single-family housing? I'm not sure that that's the case. Certainly, I, I think we saw it go a little soft out, you know, out in the suburbs after with this, the pandemic ended and people realized they might actually have to go to the office a few days a week right. and, and the hour and a half drive might not be so, you know, quite what they wanted. But I, so there's probably a little, you know, in, in pockets where it's got, it got probably a little overheated. Maybe there's some, uh, some drifting down, but we can't make more single family lots in the lower mainland, really. So if you have one of those and you probably paid, unless you just bought it, a year ago, mm-hmm. you've probably paid a lot less than what it's worth. So, you know, you're going to be fine. It might not be worth what it was a year ago, but you presumably don't, if you don't have to sell it today, you know, you're, you're fine. Um, so I don't see the single family. I, I, I think there's probably an easing of the high-end real estate. And I think we've seen that, you know, we've seen some projects that were trying to get 2000 a square foot condo, not go ahead, yeah. not get their pre-sales, have to pivot, have to pivot to more of a, you know, I was going to say mid-market product, but I'm not sure if 12, you know, 1500 a foot's a mid-market product, <laughs> <laughs> but having to pivot to a different audience, uh, we could put it that way. So I think some of that there's, you know, certainly the, the bending of the, the, the luxury market certainly has, has fallen off in, in, in Vancouver for, you know, a variety of reasons that I'm not an expert on, I, mm-hmm. I think. So maybe we won't go, we won't go there. But for just the regular product, yeah, if you have if you have ground oriented, I think you're probably in good shape. And, you know, I think any real estate is still going to do OK. Uh, it's really right now, it's obviously the interest rates and the mortgage rates and what people can afford to carry. But if we keep bringing in people making good money into this region, you know, I think if you've got something that's coming up for sale, you're probably OK in terms of there will be buyers, um, I would think, just because of just this wave of people that's almost double what what's the normal mm-hmm. Uh, what's been the long-term average of uh, of people coming into the region. So you're going to find a buyer. But if you're trying to do, you know, if you're trying to think about a very large master plan community and what kind of pricing you needed, that could be a little trickier in the future. Just if we start, if the popular, if that, if you're assuming the population is going to stay at adding 78,000 a year, 
in, and that's the kind of flow you need to make your numbers work, then you're going to be seeing some pain. Right. Last question, Wendy, you know, if you were advising a niece or nephew and they had $2 million and may, we do, it doesn't have to be in Vancouver, okay. uh, but investing in real estate, what would you advise them? Two questions. One, what and where? And two, when would you buy right now? And what and where would you buy? And not you, your for fictitious niece or nephew. That somebody you very relationship somebody with. very important in your well, life. Well, this is getting a little outside my my day job expertise. Sure. So that's you know, there's there's the first challenge that you've you've put on me. <laughs> uh, so I'm now I'm just, just think off the top of my head. I would look to either pick up if you have two million cash. Um, I, I would say two million budget. Two million just, budget. Just, okay. Just yeah, well, two million cash, I was going to say, you know, buy a single family house where there's, you're in the path of development, like on, you know, Nanaimo Broadway, that's sort of somewhere right. or somewhere in the Broadway corridor. Uh, if you have just a two million budget, uh, so you've got like a couple hundred thousand in cash and then yeah. the rest of it, you've got to make, you've got to find ways to make payments on. Good question. I think, you know, I guess I'm maybe a little bit biased to, to East East Vancouver near, you know, with future of the Broadway line coming through city of North Van along the Lonsdale Corridor. If you could find something, especially that's like, I'm thinking a redevelopment site with rental potential right now. So mm. could you find a townhouse off the Lonsdale Corridor somewhere that, you know, you hold for a bit and wait for the surrounding group to uh, to redevelop it? Mm-hmm. That might be might be a good play. Uh, that I would I would look for is a couple of those, you know, some of those markets where there's a lot of development is going to come in the next 10, 10 plus years and that maybe you'd be a part of it. Then, you know, roll your roll your investment into a bigger a bigger project and then you get something new out of it plus uh, plus a return. So it sounds like and, and just to kind of summarize, but it sounds very much so like you're you're forecasting pretty far out in just in for for GWL but also like that's the that's really the value of of this city is is what's to come in the next 10 to 15 years. I think so. I think you know in the city of Vancouver hopefully we have a council that's going to embrace this opportunity which is to add a lot more housing, revitalize a lot of neighborhoods that have been you know, slowly fading. Kitsilano would be be one of those that, you know, sort of got an aging population. There hasn't been new housing there much in the way of it for ever. Yeah. <laughs> hundred years. <laughs> you know, and re, you know, revitalize some of these great neighborhoods, uh, which already have, you know, a nice walkable high street, but they've been getting kind of quiet. So I think there's a huge opportunity there, you know, as well as, uh, you know, parts of East Vancouver densifying, so revitalizing these these uh, these sort of transit and you know walkable corridors, you know here is you know I've been really impressed with what's been happening along the Lonsdale corridor in North Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So I think there's yeah over the next 10, 15 years, I think there's a huge there's huge opportunities. I think you know obviously some of the suburban areas as well, and some of them I don't know as well as others. With these great walkable mixed use neighborhoods, you know with you know that have breweries and you know kids play areas and kids spaces and parks and great recreation. Um, so I, I think there's, there's a lot of hope for this region, but we really do have to fix the housing supply. And it means housing everywhere. It can't just be Burquitlam that is taking all of <laughs> yeah. all of the new housing and amazing Brentwood and, and the Brentwood right. neighborhood is amazing in terms of how much housing they've added there. Right. But we can't just be there. It's got to be the older neighborhoods of Vancouver have to embrace 
change and, and embrace the fact that it brings in vitality. It brings in a workforce to work coffee shops and to work restaurants. Uh, you know, by having a diversity of housing, you get a diversity of people. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, yeah, I'm optimistic if we can do that, but we absolutely have to say yes to more housing. And I know it's hard for people that have been in their single family home for a long time to welcome the idea that the neighborhood might become mixed density. Mm-hmm, right. But we we need it. To, we need that to happen. Uh, it's a great city and great people, and and the history of the city is is has been in. You know, it's always been welcoming people, but it's always uh, been a, been a tight market. So, so it sounds like if we build it, they will come. But if we don't build it, they're still coming. People are coming, and it will end up being though that are you going to end up with this hollowing out? Where how do you get? You know, a lot of people have their daily Starbucks, Tim Hortons, whatever it is. Well, if those people who work there have no place to live anywhere near those, and we're in a labor shortage as well, they're going to work near wherever they can live or go to school or, Mm -hmm. you know, wherever it is. So they might not live in your neighborhood if you don't embrace some economic diversity and and some change. And I think it's that quality of life, that experience that we get used to of being able to go to restaurants seven days a week, Mm -hmm. you know, with the labor shortage recently, like you see on commercial drives, some restaurants only open five days a week. They just say it's a staffing issue. We just can't, we just can't do it. And are we going to start seeing four days a week of restaurants, uh, you know, no morning coffee certain days of the week at your favorite coffee shop, because they just say, we just can't get staffing. So I think that's something we need to be thinking about is that we need uh, more housing everywhere, diversity of housing in terms of for mixed incomes, welcoming newcomers. And uh, if we can do that, the next 10, 15 years are, are really exciting for this region. Sound advice. Well, Wendy, uh, we have this segment called the Five Wire, Five Lighthearted Questions that we end the show. Okay. Can you stick around for that? <laughs> sure. Okay. So question number one is one book that you've read recently that you'd recommend for our listeners. I don't know if it's for, for everybody. Uh, Weapons of Math Destruction, M-A-T-H. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's Kathy O'Neill, I believe, is the author. And it's looking at some of the limits of data and limits of using database sort of algorithms for analyzing, you know, whether a school is good, whether you should buy something or not buy something in terms of that, you know, partial data ends up being the whole story instead of, you know, that it's flawed data and huh. uh, we need to look at it things more holistically. So um, Weapons of Math Destruction uh, is, is certainly... Best we'll, title, too. Yeah, that, that's great. Is it is it that the partial data is the problem or is it that I feel like we went through that and we, maybe we're still in it, but like the Nate Silvers of the world, you know, Moneyball and where it's like everything became based on just run, run a numbers set through and figure out who the best pitcher is for X number of reasons, right? Exactly. So she's pointing out some limits of that. And then also, you know, people start you know, say if it's teachers, they start teaching to the data, not right. teaching to right. whole person that you're supposed to be looking after. You're just trying to get data or teachers getting fired because they're looking after entire, the whole yeah. ch- child and not looking after their math score. Right. Um, and I think, you know, we'd all agree that we'd rather have mentally healthy children uh, with mediocre math scores than the other way around. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So anyway, it's, it's, it, it's thought provoking on things like, yeah, like, like the money ball situation of just, can we run, put everything down to numbers and does that create a better society or better decisions? And so I, I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's worthwhile for anyone that spends a lot of time in numbers and stats to take a look at. Hmm. Uh, second question for you in the last few years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Uh, I'm going to go with yoga. 
I took it up in March of 2020. Oh, <laughs> hot yoga probably. And <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. but uh, like yeah. People in a yeah. small room. <laughs> Definitely not that. No, it was because it's stuck at home. But, yeah. uh, you know, different times I've been told to try meditating and it never worked for me. I need, I can't sit still. But, uh, and also I was told to stretch more for various injuries. You're getting right. older, you still want exercise. I still exercise and do a lot of sports and, you know, being told to stretch more. And it, it somehow combined the two where it gave me, you know, sort of a, sort of a mental cleanse at the same time I could be moving. Uh-huh. So vinyasa, vinyasa yoga um, with the app that's Cassandra, Yoga by Cassandra. Great. Okay. So you do it at home. You do I do it at home. home. I've never been to a yoga class. I went to a couple on Zoom that, uh, you know, that we put out for, you know, tenants and clients uh, with the office buildings. But uh, I've never been to a yoga class, uh, but uh, I learned how to do it uh, from an app during the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) And I still do yoga every morning uh, outside on one of our back decks. So, wow. Um, Question number three, what have you been binge watching lately or a favorite movie? Uh, We've been watching Star Trek Picard. Ah, that is outside of our wheelhouse, I would say, <laughs> or at least mine, Adam. You're, yeah, no, I, uh, I, I would imagine I would like it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, so if you obviously if you watch these Star Trek Next Generation, now it's the, the you know the Picard thirty forty years later, oh, or however old he is. is new, yes. Oh, it's wow. brand new. Uh, you can get it on Crave. It's I think it also shows up lot you know on uh, Sci Fi Channel or something, but uh, you can get it on Crave. Very wow. cool. Favorite band or music, Wendy. Um, that one is a tough one. Uh, and I knew it was coming because I listened to one of your recent podcasts, <laughs> but uh, I found out I like, I've not been listening to music very oh, much really? lately, but, uh, going down to see Billy Joel and Stevie Nicks in LA next week. So we'll go with, uh, Ooh, wow. some, some vintage stuff. And that's in LA? It's an LA oh, outdoor man. stadium. I can't remember the name of the stadium, but it's the, in Inglewood, in Inglewood, Paramount, something like that. Wow. Very cool. And last uh, last but not least, something that you have purchased for under $1,500 that's had a positive impact on your life in the last few years? Uh, because it was such a surprise that it did, going with the Apple Watch. Ah, yeah. I was actually, uh, I feel like I, it's now just a, an appendage of mine. But at first I was worried because I was like, man, I'm on my phone too much. Do I really need another screen? You can turn off the notifications, can't you? I mean, I hope you can. I, I'm, I'm. I don't know. Doing that. I. Uh, but now I like sleep with mine. I'm. I'm yeah, so data. Speaking of data, <laughs> like I can't. I. I'm hooked on how much core sleep did I get last night versus REM or whatever. You know, yeah. it's like I've been doing that, but I. I like the alarm that it just sort of buzzes my wrist, oh, so yeah, I'm not not wake me not too. waking up my husband when I'm getting up at five yeah. five thirty. And it's, when yeah. are you charging your watches? You know, what you do. Here's the, here's, here's the trick. Tip. Here's the thing. No, it literally, it charges really quick. So you go from like say eight till nine nine thirty. I feel like you're you're done. In the evening, I just plug it in. By nine thirty, it's full. I don't. I tend to just put it on when I wake up in the middle of the night, and I just put it on. I charge oh, it as I'm going to yeah, bed. Yeah. But I've also talked to people that do it like while they're having their some women like doing you know shower and hair and makeup and stuff in the morning. They put it on the charger, and, and it's, 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 it's it only yeah. takes about forty five minutes to an hour. So I've tried, I tried for, for a little while, I tried the, when I was doing Zoom meetings, because of course I, I got this during the pandemic, where I have to sit still in front of a camera. I'd make sure I take my watch off and put it on a charger because I'm not allowed to move anyway. Yeah, you're <laughs> not going to lose any steps. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to lose anything out of doing that. But I've now found, I just, I just put it on as I'm going to bed and then I, I always wake up in the night. So I just grab it and put it on when I wake up. Well, well, Wendy, how can people find out more about what you're up to? And then of course, GWL Realty Advisors. 
Well, obviously, uh, you can go to gwlra.com. And there actually is a research tab on there. So you can get to uh, some of the research that we've published. We publish anywhere from about four to eight research notes a year, just depending on how, how busy we are. And you can find me on LinkedIn. And I've been sort of making a point of publishing uh, a chart or two a week on my LinkedIn feed. So you can go there. Uh, I think so those are two, uh, two great places to look. And uh, the Real Estate Forum in April, you're, you're moderating the Titans panel. Yes. So I'm also with uh, Andrew Tong from Concert Properties. The two of us are co-chairing the Vancouver Real Estate Forum, which is coming up, uh, yeah, on April the 5th. And uh, so what co-chairing involves doing a little bit of curating the content, but also we're emceeing the day. So there's a lot of uh, great speakers, you know, as well as, you know, the housing minister. We've got the mayor of Vancouver, mayor of Surrey, uh, great speakers on every asset class, as well as some of the debt and lending challenges that uh, a lot of real real estate industry professionals and and companies are facing. And then, yeah, at the end of the day, we've got a a great panel that, uh, you know, Michael Emery from... Allied REIT, and I'm not going to make me go through, Eric Carlson from Anthem, right? Uh, Colin Lynch from TD, and uh, Janice Lynn from, uh, from Blackstone. So we've got a really uh, powerful panel of uh, real estate leaders from across the country at the very end of the day, which I'm looking forward to getting to interview them and, uh, and hear what their perspectives are on you know, Vancouver and Canada and real estate over the next few years. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for coming down, Wendy. That was great. Okay. Thanks for having me. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Wendy Waters, Vice President, Research Services and Strategy at GWL Realty Advisor. Really enjoyed that conversation with Wendy, Matt. So many takeaways. So awesome that she was in studio with us. We the had funniest a lot part of, about Wendy is after she was like, ah, we did it on a Friday. She was like, well, Friday afternoon, I wasn't at my best. I was like, man, if that's not your what's, best, what what's your best? best? What is your what does Wendy Waters' A game look like? That's a good question because that felt pretty A to me. No kidding. Uh, but anyways, no, always uh, always a treat having her in studio and having her on the program. What else do we got for today, Matt? We mentioned a couple things just quickly. We talked about at the beginning of the show, the sold plan. Click sell with us at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. Get a copy of the sold plan. It's perfect if you're thinking about listing this spring. Feel free to get in touch if you have any questions. Matt, we should also say our Instagram, we are creating a lot of short form content, super useful right. content. Our TikTok's blowing up. Feel free to follow us on TikTok, <laughs> I guess. But we're on. We're more on Instagram. We are posting, uh, we're posting short form content, like I said, mostly on the market. Also just great tips. Follow us on Instagram. What else, Matt? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is our website where all things real estate related live, including the sold plan. We also have the live wire. This is our weekly mailer. There's no reason why you shouldn't be on this list. We have VIP access to tons of pre-sales right now. And there's still some incentives. Good incentives. And there's some good incentives. But interestingly enough, might be going the way of the dwindling incentives in the yeah. pre-sale market right now. Well, as the market heats uh, it, up, it, right? It, it definitely, I feel like everyone is saying the same thing. It's getting busier out there and those incentives are disappearing. We still have some at the live wire. We have deal of the month. We have different types of stats before anyone else. Oh, uh, and a heck of an assignment that you've got in your pocket. Well, yeah, um, I just if somebody is interested. Yeah, no kidding. Like five. What is it? Let's Anyways. just put it high five hundreds for over six hundred square feet, brand new, completing this spring. Large in outdoor East space in East Vancouver. You're not going to find that anywhere else. Yeah, no kidding. And of course, we still have buy with us private client services. This is a new button. It's called buy with us. 
you hit it, you can sign up for private client services. And it's worth noting, Adam, this is how you found that deal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love PCS. I literally have searches set up for, for everything. You can too. You know what? The one thing is, is that it allows you to be first. It really does. And I believe that. So if you are out there and you are looking for property, sign up for your own free PCS. It is on the new site, vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Create your own account. And Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still. You've got to do the pitch. Well, the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free. It's available at your fingertips. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Buy with us and uh, you can set up your account there. Matt, how can people get in touch? They can get in touch at any point with me at 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Have a great week, guys, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Thank you.